0: This is Words
1: Matter with Norm Ornstein. They have no moral backbone. And Dr. Kavita Patel. And the spicy meatball.
0: Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we are heading into another election cycle and what our leaders are saying and doing about them or not. And today we want to tackle something that I know all our listeners have absolutely heard Us utter these words, Norm, debt limits, debt ceiling. We're going to just go a little bit deeper into what is exactly at stake and why is it emerging this week in particular as a headline. And maybe even uh, I'd love, Norm, to kind of get your take. I wish we could play and maybe we can try if I can find it quickly. The Simpsons clip where there was actually a joke about printing like a, you know, or having a trillion dollar coin or a billion dollar coin.
1: To make good on this drunken post, Truman authorized the one-time printing of the largest denomination currency ever, a trillion-dollar bill.
0: Ooh, a trillion-dollar bill. That's a spicy meatball. And sure enough, that's actually one of the options on the table, is for the Treasury to mint a trillion-dollar coin in an, in an effort to deal with the federal debt crisis. So if it's okay, let me uh, set the stage a little bit. I often find myself going back to policy reports when I was on the Hill and worked on the Hill, the Congressional Research Service. I want to offer this up to listeners if they've never actually utilized publicly available Congressional Research Service reports. You can get them at crsreports.congress.gov. I, when I worked in the Senate, had the luxury of being able to write to the Congressional Research Service. Think of them as your literally the world's best research assistants, I could write them and ask a question that would be complex or nuanced, simple, all of the above, and get back what I thought were just incredibly well-documented, fact-based, didn't matter what party was requesting um, the research. But I went, as we have been talking for weeks now, about the implications of the slim margins, but still margins in the on the house and how the rules committee set it up for the uh, showdown of the year on the federal debt i went back to a CRS report that was issued that i think does the best job for listeners in four pages or less to explain this we'll put the link in our show but basically the federal debt actually gets to, like it gets close to its statutory limit and the policy questions that kind of come up from this are all the after effects basically the 2007 financial crisis, which is when um, Obama, end of Bush, early Obama, and the Great Recession at that time, as well as a response to COVID-19. And the gap between federal revenues and the outlays, what's been committed is also what's pushed up kind of public government's debt. This is what's at stake here, because this gap between the Kind of, I'll call it the profits and the losses are what's pushing the United States literally to historic debt levels like we have never seen before. So the statutory debt limit kind of is, is literally law that tries to constrain that. And as it's gone up so high, there now has to be a Congress has to deal with this in some way. Now that we have something, what are the options on the table? In a normal kind of Congress, I hate to say this, but in a normal kind of Congress, not only with the Treasury Department, but the Federal Reserve, all this debt that gets held by the feds, treasury, cash balances, all of that. Normally, Congress would then take and raise that statutory limit so that we can actually allow ourselves to have more debt or do something so that we don't cross hairs with federal monetary policy. And and this again is where CRS does a better job than I'm going to. So I'll let listeners try to review that. But basically, what we can't do, because most people listening might think, look, why do we need to do this? Let's try to exert some fiscal constraint. That then ends up causing a ripple effect where not only could we trigger even more of a great recession, the Fed would need to take action, as they are already doing, to have to sell off assets, including treasuries, including being able to get cash quickly. And that will also put People who are looking for apartments, jobs, housing, that'll put them in a tailspin and cause probably the most major financial disruption. Bottom line, no matter who you are and what you do, this would affect you. So maybe I'll just set that policy backdrop as, and then Norm, can you help listeners understand, here's how we got, here's why or how we got here. What are our solutions, knowing that we have a Congress that is now literally unable to get anything done.
1: So first, uh, this, of course, is an anomaly among other nations. Other countries don't have a debt limit. The reality is you raise revenue, you spend. If you don't raise uh, as much as you spend, you have a debt and you cope with it in one way or another. Sometimes it means that you're going to have more inflation. Sometimes it means that You're going to have to raise your own interest rates to get people to buy your currency, all of those things. But we're alone among significant nations with this anomaly. Now, over many decades, this has been a subject of political games. Usually, what happens is the party that doesn't hold the presidency sets itself out as the protectors of fiscal sanity and probity and uh, rails against raising the debt ceiling. The party of the president swallows hard and says, we got to do this. But it's a game that both parties understood was just that. And the leaders would always keep us from going beyond the brink. There were always the votes in place to raise the debt ceiling. Then over time, we found other ways of trying to work around it. The House, when Democrats have been in charge, has had something called the Hoyer Rule. Senny Hoyer, the longtime majority leader, basically said whenever you pass a budget, you automatically raise the debt ceiling based on what the projections are of how much debt you're going to increase. The Republicans eliminated that. In 2011, we came very, very close to breaching the debt ceiling. That was because the Tea Party lunatics who came in wanted to use it as a hostage to extract outrageous changes from the uh, Obama administration. They were egged on by Kevin McCarthy and the then majority leader, Eric Cantor. And we came right up to the edge of the abyss. John Boehner, then the Speaker, saved us, probably at the beginning of the end of his speakership. Now, there was no Freedom Caucus back then. Freedom Caucus formed in 2015 because the right-wing caucus wasn't right-wing enough, and they now dominate this Congress. And we're going to see a repeat of 2011, except there are many more crazies. Back after we came that close to the brink, which, by the way, just getting close meant that our credit rating was downgraded for the first time in history. Interest rates rose It cost taxpayers at least 18 or $19 billion in added interest payments without having breached the debt ceiling. Jason Chaffetz, then one of the crazies, said, we would have gone right over the cliff. We were ready to do this. Now there are a hundred or more Jason Chaffetzes, and John Boehner, who wasn't the strongest speaker in the history of the House, was a hundred times stronger than Kevin McCarthy. So we face a real danger here. I wrote a piece in October in The Atlantic warning about this, and I was among those who tried for two years to get a different scheme in place. Back then, Mitch McConnell also, recognizing that this would be devastating not just to the country, but for him more important to the Republican Party, found another workaround. It's called the McConnell Rule. And it is that The Treasury Secretary, acting on the orders of the president, would automatically raise the debt ceiling. Congress could block it by passing a joint resolution, but here's the key, the president could veto that. So all he would need is one-third of one house, and it would mean that basically you don't have any more games played with the debt ceiling. We tried to get that reinstituted, made permanent. We tried during the lame duck. What happened? They would have to do it through reconciliation because the Republicans in the Senate said, we're not going to cooperate with this. So they needed all 50 Democrats. Guess which two said, no, they weren't going to do that. Well, I'll give you a hint. Both <laughs> of them were in Davos. Rhymes with
0: mansion. <laughs> rhymes Yes. With, <laughs> rhymes, well, let me give you a guess. Rhymes with Skinema. And yes, both yes. were in Davos. Private Uh, jets, no doubt, because I don't actually think any planes fly to Davos, from what I understand. (laughs) Commercial flights.
1: (laughs) So Manchin's reason was, this needs to be bipartisan, and we're not going to do it on a partisan basis. Remember, that's what Manchin said about voting rights. And so he set out, rather than change the filibuster rule, he set out to find a group of Republicans where they could reach a a more modest but still meaningful voting rights package. They pulled it together. And guess what? His goal of making it bipartisan didn't work because the Republicans in the end said no. Well, we've got the same thing now, only this is even more disastrous than what would have happened with voting rights, although only by a little bit. And now it's too late. Now, we've got the crazy's running the house, and what can you do about it? Well, one of the reasons that Manchin and Cinema balked is they were talking to Maya McGuinness, who heads the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, who wants another Simpson-Bowles commission, which would be not a great idea right now, but a commission that would work to come up with a a fix to our long-term debt problem. Remember back then, the Simpson-Bowles Commission recommended significant tax increases along with significant changes in Medicare and Medicaid, and they didn't get the votes needed to make it happen. One of those who killed it was Paul Ryan back then. Republicans in the House have instituted another part of their rules package, a three-fifths rule to raise taxes. So if you get any Simpson-Bowles commission together, that will recommend major changes in Medicare and Medicaid. And of course what the Republicans in the House want is dramatic changes, raising the age of retirement to 70 and uh, also eliminating a good portion of the income tax and replacing it with a 25 or 30% sales tax, a value added tax. Those are not gonna happen. But if in the end you have to create a commission that goes nowhere, but you save the debt ceiling, that might work. One other twist here I'll mention, Kavita, and then I'll stop. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution basically says our debts will be paid, period. It guarantees that we will not default. So that's where the coin comes in. At least in extremists, what Joe Biden could do is to say, I have to fulfill my oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, no matter what you do with the debt ceiling, the Constitution says no, you can't. So I am going to direct Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, to create a three trillion dollar titanium coin that, in fact, will be kept in the Treasury. We can keep it at Fort Knox. We don't want to put it in a box in uh, my garage, and and that will take care of it. Now that's how well that would work with financial markets globally, I don't know. What I do know is the cost even of threatening this is going to be considerable for us. And if we did default, the global economy would crater and it would have implications not just for us, but even more broadly.
0: But I mean, I can't help but love the Simpsons lover in me just loves the fact that somehow we've taken policy advice from you know an old episode in Homer Simpson. But I'm aside from that, you're right. Interestingly enough, let me read what a White House spokesperson told Reuters, and this will just give you a bit of a sense of, I I have to admit, Norm, I walked away thinking, what's going on? White House basically said that, one, they're not going to negotiate. That I understand. Very clear public signal that they're not negotiating with terrorists. And I think that's smart. However, they did say, like someone, and again, this wasn't someone that was attributed, didn't want to be attributed, uh, attribution, but did say... Leading congressional Republicans have themselves admitted that default would trigger an economic collapse, killing millions of jobs, decimating 401k plans. You know, and, and the White House thinks that even though this high stakes kind of game is going to be played with people's lives, but that when it comes down to the last minute, they do think that they'll be able to get some compromise. So even though we know that there are segments of the House Republican caucus, again, these insider um there are segments of the House Republican caucus and the broader sort of conservative atmosphere that are explicit in making the case that it wouldn't be the worst thing to not come to a deal with Democrats, that most Republicans understand that that is just not acceptable. So I think that you're 100 percent correct that like there is this like we're not going to default on the debt that a lot of conservatives that are not Freedom Caucus kind of terrorists are saying but you and I have already seen how this plays out with just getting, I mean, the so, so tell me, Norm, why is there, is this just White House posturing? They have to do this, but they're probably scared on the inside. And the reason I say that is because I've been talking to friends from Treasury where you, you know, that's ground zero, right? Like, and so I've talked to my political friends at Treasury and pretty high levels of, of Treasury. And they said that, you know, yes, they're kind of planning, contingency planning, doing all sorts of planning, but they too feel like this is getting blown out of proportion in the media and that this is not necessarily going to be as alarmist as I think it is, as you rightly predicted. What am I missing? Or do you think this is Biden, you know, trying to hide how terrified they are because that's what they need to project?
1: I think it's a mix of the two, Kavita. I think there are a lot of people who believe that, oh, they just simply couldn't do this because it's unthinkable. They haven't spent a lot of time around the people who dominate the House right now, and perhaps they overestimate Kevin McCarthy, who is the weakest and most feckless leader we have had. Now, they floated another idea, which I'm afraid also makes it more of a danger, which is, I'll tell you what, we go into default and what we're going to do is to say, because we're bringing in X dollars in revenue and we're spending Y dollars and the gap between the two is what is the addition to the debt that brings us up to the ceiling. But we're bringing in so much revenue that all we have to do is just spend up to that revenue. Now, what does that mean? And of course, the first thing that they said is, To avoid a global crisis, the first people we will pay are the bondholders, the ones who actually hold our debt so that, you know, it's like saying, all right, we're in in big trouble, but we're first going to pay off the mortgage, make sure that we don't lose the house, and then we're going to pay the credit card debt. But what that means is we're not going to be able to eat. We're not going to be able to heat the house. We're not going to be able to drive the car. What they're saying is we're going to pay the Chinese, who are the major bondholders that we have, and we'll pay Social Security and Medicare, but nothing else. So you don't pay the FAA. Air traffic comes to a complete halt, not just for a couple of hours, but for a long period of time. You're not going to pay Medicaid. And that means we're going to have an additional crisis, especially because we already know now we've got major health problems that are continuing and on and on and on. And it would lead to an even bigger crisis. But it's a rationale that many of these crazies have that will lead them to believe we could go over the cliff and we have a parachute. But it's a parachute filled with holes. So I'm more worried. Now, I do think that the White House is a little too optimistic on this. If I were Joe Biden, I would be every day warning about the consequences of default. Even though that's going to spook some in the markets out there, I think you have to make it clear what the costs are that will put pressure on what is a substantial number of House Republicans who know how disastrous this is. But the fact is, as you and I have seen, Over and over, Kavita, they're cowards. And if push comes to shove, they have no moral backbone. They are not likely to go along with something that goes against what is now a core principle of the Freedom Caucus. And so you've got to put the pressure on them to make them understand what the consequences are of their actions. And you have to make it clear that if we do go over the cliff, we know who to blame.
0: Yeah, maybe this is a good takeaway for all of us, including listeners, that just like I had to actually kind of go back to these kind of congressional research service reports to understand, like, what exactly are we talking about? How did we get here? It is worth, and this is something that I don't want to count on popular media to do, but we should do a better job of literally painting out what life would be like. If they do not come to an agreement the very people that both republicans and democrats have elected into office and i i'm at this stage i'm of the mindset of listen we got we can complain all we want but these are the hands that we got dealt with because the elections as jerry-rigged as some of them were and are this is what we're dealing with and we need to find a way to explain to people who don't frankly have the time to you know hopefully have the time to listen to this podcast but don't have the time to kind of dive into the research like you and i do how can we get them to understand what life would be like i don't even understand norm because the idea that we would not have the 401k's that bank accounts that all the things that you have taken for granted would actually come to you know susceptibility are not just mind boggling but just too too stressful to deal with so we do probably need to illustrate that very picture your retirement is in jeopardy Your ability to actually get cash out of your banking accounts if they're over, you know, even of a certain amount are in jeopardy. And number three, like the credit of the United States as a a country is something we do take for granted, not even if you travel internationally. It's just something that we've taken for granted. When the credit of the United States, when the credit rating, this is something everyone can relate to, when the credit score that sometimes you look for when you apply for a credit card or applying for a, a mortgage, when the country's credit score is in the orange and red, we are in a very, very bad situation. And and I don't know. By the way, I, I have learned over the years it might shock people. I'm not sure, Norm, that much of Congress understands this because I I have often found myself, especially on domestic policy like health care, I have found myself talking to especially recently elected members on the Democratic side. In my case, and I think probably similar for you. Who have no idea what the Affordable Care Act is, literally, and I and I kind of stop and think, yeah, I mean, I know I'm old, and this was like a long time ago, but it is kind of important. So I am absolutely certain that uh, we need to probably get some members of Congress to listen to not only this podcast, but do um, a one hundred and one for them on what's at stake here, because then I think they won't feel so comfortable in hoping that we do the right thing, you know. This, but anyway, what's your take?
1: So let me even focus a little more broadly. The consequences are dire that you have indicated. There's more. It's not just that the global economy would be shaken by this. The U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world. This would jeopardize that status, and that would have much larger implications for the U.S. down the road. At the same time, if we want to send a signal to the world that the American political system is broken, not just in a minor way, not just like a uh, a sprained ankle, but that the entire body has been shattered. What that does to America's role in the world, what that does to our adversaries thinking that now's the time to strike because they're in complete chaos, is uh, earth-shattering as uh, as well. The other part of this that I find so striking, and it's there too with what the Republicans are demanding, they are now the party of basically two groups, evangelicals and the white working class. They want to raise the retirement age to 70. If you are doing manual labor and you want to retire because you really can't do it anymore once you're past 65, that's a disastrous thing. The degree to which they want to stick it to their own constituents, believing that no matter how much pain they cause, they're still going to be with them, is just mind-blowing. And of course, the idea of having a 25 or 30% VAT, if the other countries have value added taxes, if you use them as a complete replacement for an income tax, you might be able to find a way to justify it. But for a party that's complained about inflation, to increase the price of everything by 25 or 30 percent is going to hurt the working class people even more than anybody else. It's just amazing to me how our politics are playing out with a group of extremists who are now in charge of one of our two major parties.
0: Just to build on that, I first of all, you have scared me more than I had already been scared because I had not kind of thought through just the reserve and, and just the default currency. I don't travel internationally as much as I wish I could. And so it just, these things do not strike me as, as obvious, but put a, like a kind of an extension on that because we do think that Biden's going to announce his desire to seek a reelection could be that people are saying February, you know, after hopefully, you know, delivering like a more strong state of the union, et cetera, et cetera, on the heels of something positive. They're, very much assuming he's going to run for reelection. How does this put a reelect? I could actually see this helping a Biden reelect, right? This, this chaos, unsuing threats, and then having maybe even Biden himself be part of the solution. Great tailwind for him. I could see a headwind as well, because again, we're dealing with, unlike any previous caucus dynamic within Congress that I've ever seen that you've ever seen, this is It's not just unscripted, it's unhinged. So we could easily see this backfire. What does this do for not just presidential politics, but, you know, we've got those Senate seats that are at play and a lot of them look like they could lean Republican? Norm, what what are your political prediction? What do you think?
1: Well, I can tell you that Mitch McConnell is among those who's scared to death. And it was very interesting to see McConnell yesterday say flatly, we will never default. McConnell was one of those, along with Boehner, who saved us in 2011, as I indicated before. I think, being quite cynical about McConnell, that it was more about damaging the Republican brand than anything else. But it doesn't matter what the motives are. He was ready to do the right thing. He now is on the verge of seeing a Republican majority in the Senate. There are only 12 Republican seats up. They are almost all in a category we would see as safe. They're red states. There are twice as many Democrats who are up. There are many of those seats, like Ohio, for example, that are in significant jeopardy, even in states where incumbents are running. Montana, John Tester would be you know, vulnerable. And the one thing that could cost him the majority is if we go into chaos and people blame Republicans. Now, that takes us back to what you were saying about Biden. Some of this depends on how artfully Biden handles this. You're right about headwinds. If things don't go well, you're not going to have every voter look out there and say, you know, this is all the fault of the Republicans. It's, hey, it happened on your watch. You're the one who is supposed to deal with it. So there's a danger here. And that's where I really think that Biden needs to get out ahead of the curve and make it clear who's responsible for this. If somehow he can bring us back from the brink, that'll work to his advantage. I would prefer that he not make a formal announcement about running again for a while. How long is a while? Into the summer or the fall, just because I think it brings a different level of scrutiny to him as well. But I don't want him to say he's not running. And this, I think you're right, will precipitate uh, an announcement. You know, the other part of this, though, for for Biden, is inflation has suddenly almost disappeared. We went from having a major problem to having it down to the levels that uh, are targeted, basically. That may change. Obviously, it would change in a big way if we defaulted. We have other really good news for him. But there this has been pushed off to the side by the by classified papers issue, and which is the last thing you want. You want to have the focus on the good things that you're doing, not on all of these questions that are being raised. And this would not be a good thing for him. It would take attention away from what he's accomplished and what he hopes to accomplish. So how they handle this is also important as we go along.
0: I would have taken a bit of the opposite with, uh, you know what, With by not announcing, there's just too much insecurity in the party and too much of this like paralysis so i was actually like yeah i mean what are you waiting for joe biden but you're making me rethink this in in the final minutes let's talk we're going to preview in our members only section we're going to talk a little bit about china but i just want you to maybe if you would indulge me put a little bit of a how does all of this if you're kind of sitting on the national security council and thinking about our external face you mentioned actually janet yellen she is making outreach to China. I think she is trying to do a bit of a diplomatic tour of, we're the United States, we're still strong, but hey, we want to be friends. Just in their final minutes, comment, if you will, on the United States posture about all of this with some of our, I'll call them frenemies, including Russia, which she also did meet with some leadership. What is she trying to do and accomplish there? And Norm, how important is it?
1: Clearly, Janet Yellen is not doing this on her own.
0: No. (laughs) This is
1: all very much in conjunction with what the president wants, what Tony Blinken at the State Department wants, very likely what our intelligence community wants as well. We do not want additional international turmoil, and that includes on the trade front. It also includes trying to work out something in concert so that if somehow we do come up to the brink of default, that everybody is in concert in terms of how they handle it. Because if uh, we need to make it clear to our frenemies that this is not something that they would rejoice in. The price to be paid would be spread across the globe.
0: Yes, exactly. And, and on that note, uh, thank you so much, Norm. And if folks will listen in our members-only section, we're going to get into a lot more of not just China, but honestly, a lot more into these dynamics because they are always, as you point out, Janet Yellen does not do things of her own accord. Actually, she might on occasion, but not anything to this extent. It is highly coordinated, highly scrutinized, and highly scripted. And so that's why I thought it was of incredible interest. So I I completely agree. I want to thank our listeners and hopefully If you could actually help us by spreading the word about the podcast and subscribe to this on your favorite podcast player, we are on all of them and share this with friends on social media and become a member if you're not already at the DSR network and get access to our bonus segments and conversations. And I want to thank our incredible producer for this show, Grant Haver, and our executive producer for the DSR Network is Chris Cutler. Our next episode of Words Matter will be in your inbox on January 27th, and we'll see you then.